Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland, of course, who's sat surrounded by khaki, Bren guns, SMLEs, uh, or smellies, as I got uh, told they were called the other day. Um, uh, and who are we talking to today, James? Well, I'm really pleased about this one. We've got Lucy yes, Betteridge Dyson, who um, is a military historian. Um, she's also the founder of Her Story Club, which is um, helps to connect women with a passion for history and the past. And she's a specialist in the First World War and horses, I think I'm right in saying, Lucy. But also the Arakan, uh, and particularly the third Arakan um, campaign, which, of course, we touched on the other day when we were talking about Hill 170. 
Um, yeah. And, um, you know, we're <laughs> fantastic of you to come on and, and, and brilliant to see you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, pleased to be here. And I, I think it's, it was great the other day hearing you guys touch on this campaign as well, because it's something that I think hasn't received the attention it deserves over the years. I mean, this is genuine. I mean, you know, we, we, we've rolled up. I roll my eyes a little at the idea of the Forgotten Army, because after all, it was the thing they liked to call themselves in sort of ironic celebration of their achievements at the time, wasn't it? I think it's it's fair to say. But this is a, this is genuinely uh, that's it's the neglected bit of the Forgotten Army. If, you're gonna, if, if there's a sort of pecking order <laughs> of um, of oblivion. For the for campaigns in the Far East, this is pretty much at the bottom, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's the, the forgotten battle of the forgotten army, which is no longer really forgotten. But this this um, yeah. this particular action, I think, let's not say it's forgotten because it's not, but it's it's definitely not received as much attention as other things. You know, we hear a lot about so, okay. Kahima uh, and Infel, so... Yes, and also what's going on at sort of roughly the same, not quite, I mean, this is a bit of a kind of precursor, isn't it? But, but the same sort of time we're going into... You know, the main thrust is going down towards Mandalay, crossing the Wadi and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's the it's the right hook around McTeela, isn't it? And all that. And that's that's what gets the coverage. Whereas the third Arakan um, campaign, I mean, the first one was an absolute catastrophe. The second one went a whole load better. And the third one was was really, really brilliant. But you get the sense that everyone was a bit fed up with the Arakan by that stage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, obviously, the, the first one... A disaster the second one a lot of learning went on and you know third time nailed it um but it's just weird that you don't you don't really hear you know the successes i suppose that's like a, a lot of stuff isn't it really we tend to focus on um perhaps where things well, didn't go wrong or, or the learning well, phases. so lucy so lucy why are you know is it that you you're a fan of the underdog what is the what, <laughs> what, what, what's the attraction to you of the forgot you know of this uh, forgotten squared campaign is it is it is it a personal thing i mean after all to, to hear that you're a First World War person, and of course we we don't do First World War on this podcast. Um, that's a firmly established rule. Just don't do I mean, it. You're lucky. Let's put it this way: you're lucky you're on. Um, <laughs> the, 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 how do you? How, what's drawn you to this in particular? This campaign. Um, well, my granddad um, served in it, so my granddad was in Four Four Commando, uh, Ted Sims, and. Um, I remember when I was a kid and we were at school and stuff and, you know, if we were doing history, I actually gave up history before GCSE, so I'm talking, like, way back. Um, and when everyone was sharing their family connections and, you know, we're talking about Normandy and things like that, and I was kind of always there like, oh, why does nobody ever talk about sort of where my granddad fought? And I had Hill 170, you know, was all I knew, and, and Kangor, these these two words, really. Um, and um, it just never came up, and I used to... I talked to him occasionally about it. He didn't really speak about it. And he would just say, oh, it was in Burma. And then all I'd hear about Burma was, you know, the Burma Railway. Um, and that was kind of all, all you heard about then. So yeah. I didn't know a lot about it. Um, and then as I grew up, I, you know, I was lucky enough to go to a few um, commando association meetups with my granddad when I was younger. Um, and then I really was drawn to it when um, he returned to Burma for the 60th anniversary um, of, of Hill 170. Um, and my mum went with him. Um, I don't think she knew what she was getting, letting herself in for really with it. But um, she went and was just totally bowled over by, you know, everything and learnt a lot about it. And oh, great. They so they actually went back there? Yeah, they actually went back there. It was like um, Goodness a, me. a British Legion kind of hero's return trip. So you had these like, you know, octogenarians going back and actually, you know, the conditions in Burma is pretty brutal, the weather. I'm sure, you know, I've never been, James, but I know you have. And that, that for those guys, they actually walked up 
Hill 170, you know, they went to those kind of remote areas. Um, I mean, because it is seriously, I mean, obviously you can't even get close there now because it's now um, Rakhine State. That's where mm. all the trouble with the Rohingyas is and all the rest of it. And obviously Burma's in complete turmoil anyway. But, 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 but back in 2004, I mean, it's still a pretty remote place. I mean, you know, you you go onto Google Earth and look at look at Hill One Seventy, and Ka- I mean, Kangol's not even called Kangol on Google <laughs> yeah. Earth. It's just a little collection of huts, as far as I can make out. And all those, you know, that that incredibly complex coastal coastline with its little islands and rivers and mangroves and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. I mean, what a place! Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it was pretty amazing. They they all went back, you know, my granddad organised it all. Um, he was kind of the guy who got all the old guys oh, wow. together to, to get it going. And How he wrote brilliant. a little account of it. And the, I've got so many photos of, you know, the old boys on the beaches at Akyab um, and, and on Hill 170. And I guess that's where then I, you know, really, really got interested in it. Of course, my granddad passed away and I never asked those questions, you know, that uh, I, I wish I should have done, you know, all those yeah, things, which is what happens, isn't it? Um, yeah. And since then, I've kind of, you know, I worked on a, a piece with my friend James Hoare for Britain at War magazine, where we did a little bit about Hill 170 and helped him with the research and that. And I thought, hey, I'm going to continue talking about this and, and getting the story out there because it deserves to be told. It's pretty cool. That's fantastic. So, so Lucy, just tell, I mean, can you sort of give us that, you know, w- what is what is the third Arakan campaign? When does it start? Obviously, Hill 170 is a kind of big, big part of that. But but mm-hmm. what what is going on at that stage of the war? So at this stage in the war, so if we, if we kind of go back to 44, by December 1944, Japanese are on the back foot. Um, and there's a, a new allied offensive to push south through, through the Arakan region of Burma um, to the coastal regions where there are these remaining um, Japanese forces. And the Arakan coast was a... a particularly important area for communication lines for the Japanese, important too for the Allies because um, you've got an airfield, um, you've got Ramri Island and also Akyab. Um, so they're, they're a kind of foothold, provide a foothold in the Arakan so that... So there's airfields the, on both those places, aren't there? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, that's great because that gives us a, a, a place to, to launch off to kind of basically finish the Japanese and drive them out of, out of Burma. Um the 54th Division of the, the Japanese 28th Army are um, basically the, the idea was to outflank those as they were retreating back um, and block off their retreat inland towards Rangoon. That's essentially the idea of this. And to do it, um, the Allies launched a, a, an attack on the Arakan by the sea. Um, so, you know, we had a, this coastal attack. Are, are the Japanese using using the coastline to supply troops in the Arakan. Is, uh, they're not using roads, they're using effectively sea lanes, are they? Yeah, so you've got, you know, what's important to, to remember about Arakan region is you've got, um, towards the coastal peninsula, you've got a lot of these uh, inland waterways, these chungs, um, and the Japanese know these well, and they're using them to supply um, and, and to really communicate and d- direct their forces. So by cutting that off, um, it leaves them pretty much stranded in this area. They're then going to be forced inland towards Rangoon and they want to, the Allies want to cut that route off too. So you're kind of getting them into this nice pocket. And, and so, so what, where, where, as the Allies decide to, to, to embark on this, what are the lessons they've learned from... Um, we forget first Arakan because, because, because those lessons then get, then get fed Completely into second, don't they? Completely messed up, aren't they? 
They're, they're, I mean, it's a disaster, and the training's awful, and all that sort of thing. And they haven't they haven't figured the jungle out, and all that sort of thing. Because I mean, it's interesting talking to you as a as a, a as a First World War historian. Because pe- one of the things that people don't like is the idea that in the First World War that the army learns anything, and they don't like the expression "learning curve." They they can't bear it when people talk about that. And you know, there's been a the, the, the last twenty the last two decades have been people going, "Well, actually, the army did do an awful lot of learning during the First World War and figure stuff out and and get and get better at it." And it's not this one note one note thing that you think is how the first world war was fought so what are they and i think that's just interesting in itself that anyone could possibly think that no one learned anything in four years i mean, it's just sort of amazing really anyway but, but <laughs> what 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 is it that they've that they've realized from second hour can that they go right okay we can't do it like that again that didn't work either or didn't quite work or is too costly or too slow so what is it that they apply to this third campaign Firstly, I can't believe you were just talking about the First World War on this podcast. Yeah, well done. You know, throw away, throw away comment. I mean, not really, I'm not interested. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's an important point. So second hour, I can say we've got Operation Screwdriver. And, you know, um, during this, there's a lot of this uh, vicious jungle fighting. And the, you know, the the Allies are really getting to grips with the the Japanese tactics that they're using on the ground. And it is a steep learning curve. Um, But... A lot of important lessons are, are learned at how best to fight this enemy, which, you know, a different to perhaps conventional training has prepared these troops for. Um, and yeah. and that's basically the, 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 the crux of it. So by the time the third Arakan comes round, um, tactics have evolved to specifically counter the way the Japanese fight, which, you know, I'm sure you guys have, have kind of established in, in previous um speaking to previous people it's well known that they you know had these silent flanking maneuvers they more of a kind of jungle warfare is totally different to what we've seen in the european asymmetric warfare asymmetric yes, asymmetric warfare. Um, and of course, you know, um, the Allies also don't have the same level of kit and resources available that they did in the, in, in the European theatre as well. So there was a lot of adaptation that had to go on at how best to work with what they had. Well, it's interesting, right. isn't it? Because one of the, I mean, one of the reasons why Mountbatten gets appointed um, as Supreme Allied Commander in the Southeast Asia Command is because of his experience of amphibious operations. And the most obvious way to get get Burma is to is to make amphibious assaults because you've got this incredibly convoluted coastline, and that was always the plan. But there's just never the shipping, is there, to do to do what they want to do? So they keep having all these various operations which are planned. I, I, is, it, is it Operation Dracula or something like that? I can't remember. Dracula, got very yeah. Name. yeah. Yes, Dracula, yeah. Dracula, uh, and, and it gets and they all get cancelled, which is why Slim ends up having to kind of do it the hard way down through the kind of central part of the uh, of the north you know from from um, and cross the Irrawaddy again etc cetera, etc cetera. but i also think you know by 1945 you know the, the 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 indian army knows it's winning and and it also you know it's it's confident isn't it you know mm. success those victories of the previous year um breed further success and they know that the japanese are not the supermen that they they once appeared to be in kind of sort of 1941 1942 and they're just they're, they're just pretty good, and the commandos, of course, are um, where your grandfather was involved. Are are extremely well trained. I mean, this is what they're trained to do: amphibious operations, jumping out of boats and landing and charging off the beaches and up up hills. I mean, you yeah. make that sound simple, but James, you make that sound simple. And, and given 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 the environment that you know, because that because that conjures up an image of of Normandy, 
Again, because we're so fixated on landing craft pulls up on beach. I mean, like it's like pulls up on beach. It's ridiculous. Even the, the, the terminology I'm using pulls up, puts a handbrake on, opens the boot. Off we go, the lads. lads all, the lads, yeah. off we go, lads. Like, 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 you know, and the dog runs off with them as well. And you'd get your kite out and whatever, like an advert for an for a for a, uh, an estate car. You know what I mean? We've 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 got we've got in our heads this side this idea of what amphibious operations look like. But they're quite different, aren't they, in, in, in this environment? Because there aren't beaches. Yeah. The, the, this, is, it, this is a totally you know. different ball game. And, and I think, yes, you know, the, the commandos were exceptionally well trained. The training at Atmacarry was intense, you know, and, you know, live rounds and, you know, multiple kind of trials on these, these conventional, uh, you know, in inverted commas, kind of landings. But... Um, the third Arakan and, you know, taking into account the, the landscape in Burma, it's definitely not the case. It's even the beaches, when we say beaches, you know, you're not talking like... It's mud, kind right? of Yeah, it's mud. It's, it's twisted trees. It's this kind of black, sticky mud and quicksand stuff that, you know, you, you come in at the wrong time and it's impossible to move in it. Never mind, get out of your landing crafts and, you know, run ashore. It just doesn't happen that way. So there was... As you said, you know, there was a lot of learning that needed to go on to prepare them. And um, even still, even with all of that, um, what makes Hill 170 and the Kangor blockade even more amazing is the fact that they managed to ad hoc a lot of stuff because what they faced, the conditions, were just just crazy, just crazy. And, um, yeah, that's why, you know, I kind of always really proud of, of my granddad for taking part in it because he always used to feed me little tidbits of kind of and then talk about it a lot but these little tidbits of information about it and you're kind of like wow I've never seen anything like this um looking at commando operations before and so what 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 are kind of adaptations are we talking about they do have armor don't they by this battle and and, and they they've got Shermans so so they're you know they're kind of up they're kind of up to date Aren't they yeah. in, that, in that respect? But you're not. But again, the armor is in the armor is in a, a, a what would be called a sort of infantry tank support role. It's not. It's not looking for other tanks. You've not got all the all the issues that. I mean, I've just been reading James's book about um, about the Sherwood Rangers, and you know they're they're fight they're fighting in a multiplicity of roles because they've armor to deal with, and they're doing infantry support, and sometimes and sometimes the sort of de facto artillery, um, uh, uh, and they're doing sort of all, all sorts of things at once. The armoured support here is very much in an infantry support role, isn't it? Yes. And, and so they've got that, but what are the other what are the adaptations? Because you, you've touched on that a couple of times. Now. Yeah. I want to know what they are. So, so essentially, what we're looking at with this is three commander brigade are, are spearheading attack, but um, because of the logistics, it's a very narrow, I guess, logistics um, operation in the fact that really nobody can come in from any side it's not like a a big wave can push behind them actually they're really furrowing a single lane almost into um into my bon and up to kangor um they are working with um you know there's there's a number of kind of different um support so we've got the the 25th 26th indian uh 81st and 82nd west african um divisions and the and they're coming down from the north. They're coming down from la- across land exactly. from Portadong, aren't they? Exactly. And then um, you've also got, you know, support from 224 Group RAF. And, yeah, there are a few Shermans involved. But actually, when you're talking about getting Shermans ashore in my bond... Yeah, well, I was, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. That's tricky. So um, the, the I guess the adaptations we're talking about is, is getting to grips with what happened. So, um, you know, I don't... We've got Akyab, which was kind of a standalone event, but the, the Mai Bon, the main um, landings at Mai Bon, uh, when the guys got ashore, um, or when they had the landing cross, kind of managed to get 
close to the shore, should I say, they step out onto this mud because actually they landed at the wrong time. The second wave came in when the tide was out. So then obviously when we're landing the Shermans, they then had to move, had to change location to avoid the mud because there's no way they would have got them ashore. So there are these kind of um, last minute responses to to the landscape and to what's going on rather than the enemy (laughs) rather than the enemy well yes because you because after all you're you the 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 landscape in the burma campaign is always is the sort of third third party or sometimes the first party to what you're you've got to deal with that lot before you fire any fire a rifle at anybody haven't you You, long before the japanese come into it you're dealing with the landscape how's this being done is it is it is it that the officers are really switched on that the ncos are switched on is it just that 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 they've got this adaptive mindset because after all Mm. a thing that supposedly the british army are bad bad at is or and the indian army and a partner to the british army is we're bad at adapting we, you, you give a bloke his orders, he only does what's in the orders. Um, you know, the, the, these, these ideas that are fairly well received about what's going, how, how have they broken, or yeah. why aren't they doing the thing that we think they might, that people think they might yeah. do? I mean, without, without tracking back to the First World War, you know, that's a well-established thing, is this, yeah. this idea of initiative um, and, and for um, commanders to, to make those on-the-spot decisions and be supported in making those decisions at the time of the event. And, and that's very much... Um, I mean, the, the commandos were fantastic at that. Yeah. Um, that's what they're trained to do, is to be adaptive, ultimately, as well. Yeah. Um, so that really shines through in this. Um, in terms of the actual, you know, the operation as a whole, um, you know, there were three main parts of it, really. We've got the landings at Akyab, um, then we've got the landings at My Bon and pushing up through My Bon, and then the Battle of Kangor itself. So, so there's L- these three Lucy, I should, ex- I should just explain that the, the Akyab is is sort of on the western side of. I mean, it's all on the coast, but it's this mishmash of islands and stuff. So you've got Akyab first, then you've got My Bon Peninsula, which is this little finger that that kind of points southwards with two big rivers either side of it. You know, sea rivers either side of it, and then on the right hand side of the Akyab Peninsula, you go up that river. And then there's two smaller rivers and, and Hill 170 is there. So it's sort of, you're pushing kind of eastwards towards the kind of sort of mainland of, of the Arakan, aren't you? Yeah, that's exactly it. And um, I think the key thing to, to remember about that is that um, although there was um, intelligence and there was, uh, you know, there were some recce's that were carried out, some aerial, um, you know, photographs and whatnot, it, it was all pretty sparse. So... Uh, my Bon Peninsula, um, you know, as James has said, is this kind of long finger um, that comes down and you've got these two big rivers and then all of these little chungs, these little inland waterways, which kind of crisscross it. Um, and most of this area was completely uncharted and, and completely unpredictable territory, essentially. So, again, this comes... I mean, that's just incredible, isn't it's it? It's amazing. And this comes back to, you know, the real success here is in this adaptability because they are... They're not really knowing what they're going into. They have a small bit of information, but that may or may not be correct. Um, and, you know, whilst they know it's going to be difficult, they know that, um, you know, the beaches, in inverted commas, at my bond are faced with sheer cliff faces and, and are yeah. full of mud. They don't really know what's beyond that. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, I'm just looking at it now, again, on, on Google Earth. And it's just, it honestly, you know, anyone listening to this, I really recommend you do this. It's just, so my bond is spelled M-Y-E-B-O-N. Uh, it, it is such a mess of mudflats, rivers, you know, these chongs, as they're called, you know. And then as soon as you get inland, it's kind of thick jungle, isn't it? And hills with, with sort of razor ridges and, and dense trees. 
you know, and in between is, is sort of flat paddy fields and things. I mean, it, you can just see it be an absolute nightmare. And, you know, operating in the in the monsoon, which is sort of May to November, isn't it, really? You know, that's just an absolute no-no, which is why, actually, the amount of fighting in the Arakan is comparatively small in terms of time, because you can only really do any fighting between kind of, you know, November, December and... Yeah, you've got a limited window. So on top of all this unknown about the landscape, there's also relatively little known about what um, Japanese commander Miyazaki has ordered, you know, how he's ordered the 54th Division to defend the area. Um, That was a little bit of a surprise as well at at Akyab with the initial landings. You know, they, they thought that this was still defended and actually when they got there... Turned out that the Japanese had actually left that cab, um, and I think one of the commandos, I always remember this, uh, recalled the the landing when they found out that it had already been, um, the, the Japanese had already retreated from there. He said there was a suburban lack of emotion. You know, they're all prepped to kind of <laughs> right, right, right. to kind of land, and it's kind of been built up, and then they got there, and it was like, oh, okay, and like you know, there's accounts of people just eating there tins of fruit on the beach you know and just having a pretty chilled out time and, and getting to grips with the villagers and that's the other area of learning is this kind of um cultural learning from from the the locals which is a big part of the the burma campaign as well so mm. that that can be picked up on on here as well so there was a lot of that going on um in the preparations at cab so have you got have you got v-force operating down here so v-force for, for those you don't know is this sort of it's it's this sort of behind the lines kind of sort of it's a bit like SOE, really, isn't it? It's kind of using it's it, it's British officers using locals um, as sort of intelligence scouts and reconnaissance and, and you know, but 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 local knowledge on the ground, isn't it? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of that going on, feeding into um, feeding into things for that that intel in the planning for this, um, but also. The Marines and the Marines, the commandos themselves. I always forget the army commandos, which I shouldn't be. <laughs> Darren Little will be at me. Um, the commandos, <laughs> the commandos themselves are actually uh, sent out when they're doing their kind of, um, you know, their little kind of recce's and their discovery um, outings here. They're also coming into direct contact with the villagers to find information out themselves. So right. at Akyab, you know, you've got these little lots of. Whilst Akyab is, is an island itself, you've also got these little ba- the Baranos, these little tiny islands off off the edge of Akyab. So they're sent there to right. contact uh, the villagers and see what's going on and see if they can provide any further intel on on the Japanese movements. Um, obviously, that the villagers are pretty reticent. They're pretty scared and you know they're terrified really of, of retribution from the Japanese. But overall, you know, are, are very helpful in just providing those little tidbits of information. Would go a long way in this in this operation. And Lucy, just 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 remind us that so your grandfather was in forty four Royal Marine Commando, yes. which is part of the Third Commando Brigade. Yeah. So. Uh, so so third... so who else is in Third Commando Brigade? Yeah, so um, we've got one and five army commando. Uh, they were raised earlier in the war, more experienced. Um, and then you've got four, two and four, four um, commando Royal Marines. Um, and they were brought together. Um, and, and and yeah, they, they kind of didn't all meet up really until um, pretty late in 44, um, because one and five commando were elsewhere um and yeah they, they reformed at that point in burma um presumably they were in were they in normandy what 
w- yeah. one commando in Normandy? Oh, no, I, I think also they'd come from also um, Alexandria. They'd been um, up in right. that, that. Yeah, so um, they, were, they were more experienced. But, of course, there's this kind of fun rivalry between the Marines and the Army commandos. And, yeah. and then they were kind of paired off together. So you had one, you know, you had um, five and four, uh, four, four commando generally together and one and four, two commando generally working together. So there's a bit of inter-learning right. going on there as well, which I think is, is an interesting area. Uh, originally... Three Commando Brigade was called Three Special Services Brigade because of yes. SS. SS. That got, yes, that you got need to changed. change that name. Well, which is which is where SAS comes from as well, because Special Air Service was an attempt to dilute SS. Which you could think, and James and I got tangled up in this thing of the the SAS that exists before the SAS. So eleven eleven uh, SAS battalion become First Parachute Regiment battalion, will become one para, but they're actually they were two Commando SS. And then the eleven, the eleven comes from the Roman numerals two. Someone mis it got it got it got misread and turned into special S. They put the A in to break it up. To break being it SS. up, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you know, because everyone point. went, hang on a minute, that special services SS. That's a little. That's not exactly the, yes. the logo. That's I, not I'm not that, wearing that, not that my smart, collar. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Um. So so um. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We'll take a break and then we'll come back to the battle on Hill One Seventeen. Take us through the battle itself. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk uh, with me, uh, Al Murray and James Holland. Um, and we are talking to uh, Lucy about the Battle of Hill 170. And we've done the preamble. And this is always the thing. When I read James's books as audiobooks, I, c- c- could we just get on the beach, please, Jim? Could we yeah. invade less, Sicily? Less the preamble, thank you. Could you just, just invade Sicily, James? Get on with it. That's how I was, when I read the... <laughs> yeah, all right. Okay. Yeah. These people, these people are all very interesting in their high commands, but could we invade Sicily, please? So, so the battle, the battle for Hill, Hill 170, they've got a shore um, and they, and they're, they're pushing in and this hill's named Brighton. Is that right? It's been given a, it's been given a, a, a one of those sort of uh, classic British code names. We'll name it uh, probably named after where someone went on their honeymoon. Yeah, isn't it? It's the yeah. usual thing. And there's a Mitford, a Milford, not Milford. Mitford. Yeah. So you've got Thames, Mersey, Milford, Pinner, all these very like obviously <laughs> named after where everyone lost their virginity or something. You know, in a classic sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. British officer style. Yeah. Um, what then happens? Because the Japanese, you've said the Japanese are in town. What? On this occasion, because they, they weren't earlier, what what do they do? What's their response? Yeah, so um, by this stage, um, three commando brigade have, have pushed up through my bond and they've pushed their pockets of, of Japanese resistance, they've pushed them out of that area completely. They've then done this second amphibious landing, which is just worth um, mentioning um, yes. because it was up uh, the Dangbong Chung. So it's not even not even on a beach. It's actually an amphibious landing from a, a waterway into a swamp. Um, so once, you know, they've, they've landed in inverted commas, there's nowhere to dig in. There's nowhere to, to kind of get any defensive position from and regroup. They're straight in there um, and they're coming out into these these mangrove swamps, essentially. Um so by this stage, so this is about, I don't know, 1, 1 p.m. in the afternoon of the 22nd of January, um, one commando are leading the assault and enemy shelling's coming straight in um, into these swamps, these mangrove kind of horrible kind of areas on the side of the Chung. Um, 
And all they could do at this point was push forward to 170, um, which was fairly heavily defended from the rear side of the hill. So, but all they can do is just push forward through it. So you've got this leapfrogging that the, the commandos do. So, you know, they'll kind of move through each other, which has worked really well in my bond. Um, and one side of Hill 170 is, is quite swiftly consolidated and they, they managed to regroup there. And then the next thing is really to plan and and to um, solidify their position and also take these lots of other little hills. Um, and again, this kind of comes back again to to some First World War stuff as well, because you've got these little um, these little areas that um, they may actually, you know, you kind of think, well, big hills, they're not necessarily that big, but they are very, very um, for the Japanese, you've got dense um, undergrowth over them and they're very good at sheltering. Um, and, you know, you get a couple of batteries in there and, and it, at the end of the day it's it's pretty devastating trying to move forward in that so they've got to i mean think, the other um, point lucy so, sorry sorry to interrupt you know, but i mean the, the, the other point is, is that basically the land all around it is flat so then any kind of hill becomes really significant in flat land well, yes if you're in a if you're in a swamp and there's a hill yeah. the hill's significant isn't it yeah <laughs> Uh, and in this in this little corner of the Arakan, I mean, the long finger, the lozenge of, I mean, it sort of looks a little bit like a kind of the top half of a crocodile, doesn't it? Kind of floating in the in the in the sea when you look at it. Um, you know, th- this it really does dominate this part of this little corner of the Arakan, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it does. a, it's a significant feature. And uh, it's a significant feature. And the second, I would say that the, the other feature that's very significant is the hill Pinna. Um, and Pinna is the closest to Kangor village and the closest to Kangor, the road, which, um, right. you know, their objective is to cut off. Um, and, and Pinna is not as big as 170, but it's um, it's arguably almost more important because that gives um, the perspective and the view over um, over the objective, essentially, which is Kangol Village. Is Pinner the one that is? Is Pinner the one that sort of runs roughly parallel to one seventy? Yeah, it's roughly parallel, and then towards towards a little Kangol. bit eastwards. Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and that was um, and that was actually that the precursor to the big fighting on Hill one seventy was um, the fighting at Pinner. Um, so. This is kind of towards the, the 23rd, so the day after that they've reached Pinna, um, they've got there. It's actually, things are pretty quiet, which seems a bit bizarre. 4-4 um, Commando um, have led this um, and they box in um, and they're seeing their objectives for the first time. They're able to, to see Kangor, to see the roads. And then around about 8pm in the, in the evening, all of a sudden they're hit with um, heavy artillery uh, and basically all, all hell breaks loose um, and the northern flank is, is heavily attacked by the Japanese. Um, and actually, it really turns out that the Japanese know exactly where they are. They've been watching them and they've been waiting. They've been waiting for nightfall um, to, to make this attack and incredibly difficult. You've got thick jungle, it's pitch black um and the commandos are having they're kind of having this artillery come left right and center trees are exploding and all of a sudden they see this very light um shoot up suddenly in the dark and the japanese launch just one of their really vicious infantry attacks where they're just throwing men at pinna um you've got the paddy fields around so as james said it's, it's very flat around there can't really see them though because of the um because of the jungle uh, the trees and whatnot but they can hear so they can hear the mules you know, braying, they can hear commands being shouted in, in Japanese. Um, terrifying to keep your nerve. And, and really, 
one of the things to that just astounds me about this and about um, the, how the commandos operated during this was the self-control to know when to fight and when to sit tight. And, and that's a big one because they really had to wait until the Japanese were almost, you know, right in front of them. Right to the eye stuff, definitely. Um, and, you know, that, I always think about the commanders when they're training, they have this thing, courage, determination, um, in, initiative and spirit. And really those four things sum up um, what goes on at Pinna and 170 over these few days. That um, uh, image you conjure up of the, you know, orders shouted in the night, the donkeys braying, that you'd be able to hear them coming. There'd be the odd rifle going off by accident and the, and the, the sort of ramping up of the tension. And the Japanese know that, that, know that psychological effect of what they're doing. It's partly a big reason they're doing it, isn't it? It's to, it's to shock you into, into submission as much as anything else. Yeah, that, it's, that's, uh, it's, that's exactly it. And they know the landscape as well. They, yeah, they, yeah. They're very familiar with it. Um, and, and, of course, that's a huge benefit. Um, mm. And so... It really is yeah. a massive benefit, actually. I mean, you, you forget <laughs> that. When you're, when you're, when you, you know, you've just come from a boat and you're scrabbling along this and you've got inadequate maps and inadequate information. That is like putting a hand behind your back. It's pretty amazing. And of course, you know, um, and, and again, comes back to learning in the second Arakan, um, the commandos are, are pretty um, aware of the, you know, the Japanese shouting in English, you know, Johnny, I'm wounded, trying to call them out essentially of their positions, of this, these boxed in positions yeah. they've got. Um, and, you know, the discipline, the, the commandos were pretty wise to all of this. Um, and, and at the end of the day at Pinna, what happened was, you know, that a few casualties and, and a few deaths in the commandos, but overall um, they just kept pushing back these waves and waves of Japanese troops that were coming in. Um, the, the discipline was incredible. And, and by by daybreak, um, around about three, four in the morning, um, the Japanese had pulled out um, and they actually, there's an account that actually says they yelled, we'll be back again in the morning. We'll be... So again, even as they're leaving, they're, they're, they're giving this kind of psychological... Kind trash of, talk yeah it's like that it's like, <laughs> it is um and and afterwards um the guys come down from from pinna and they realize the sheer weight of the, the japanese forces that have, have thrown themselves against it and you know there's accounts that they're having to step over you know body parts and just just loads of, of japanese dead um and you know we haven't even got to hill 170 yet this is the precursor yeah. to 170 yeah. so Hill 170 then. So what happens next? Yeah, what happens next? Well, um, so by this point, um, Pinna consolidated and uh, Hill 170, back on Hill 170, we've got this bigger hill, which still hasn't completely been cleared. Um, The commandos are gaining more and more ground over the hill. um, And it's come under pretty much constant bombardment by the Japanese. And this ramps up. So this gradually gets more and more intense. Um, so Lucy, the... sorry to interrupt. Where, where are the where are the yep. guns, the Japanese guns, coming from? I'm, I'm looking. I'm still looking at my Google Earth. So I've got I've got yeah. Kangor. I've got Hill 170. So they're they're basically are they, are they in the north or are they are they coming from the Kangor region? Where, where are they coming? Yeah, from? so they're coming or... from the Kangor region. Um, and the little I don't know if you can see from the map where you're looking at James, but there are lots of these little hills. You've got Duns, Perth, yes. Melrose, and all. Of... Oh yeah, yeah, and you've got the road as well. Yeah, you've got the road. So. 
whilst they're kind of clearing all these little um little features there are also still many smaller ones all around you, you know you can't right. do them all and because yeah it's quite easy to hide ultimately and so they even when they're exploring the commandos and, and yeah. the, the troops are finding these abandoned gun positions which is putting them into kind of like a sense of security only to find yeah. that they've been deliberately left exposed to kind of draw them into other areas and all this kind of stuff so so yeah this this bombardment's coming in quite heavy on hill 170 um by this point, we've got the 51st uh, Indian Brigade. They've begun to arrive and reinforce the area. Um, three Shermans from the 19th Lancers are there, which is great. Um, the first attempt to land those tanks on, on the 25th failed. One sank into the mud. So, you know, you kind of got all this going on. The logistics are, are tricky, yeah. as, we, as we know. Um, and we've got two companies of Hyderabad uh, also helping to clear the, the hills around the area as well. So and one of them is so steep that, you know, you've got accounts of the guys are having to scramble up on all fours, which is not something you want to be doing when you don't know what's at the top. So that's all a bit terrifying. By 31st of January, that's when, um, you know, the battle for Hill 170 really begins. Um, bombardment is pretty intense. You've got like 180 odd shells falling in the space of about 30 minutes. So it's pretty pretty horrific um and the japanese from the the northern end which is heavily wooded still uh throw themselves at one and four two commando who were holding that area um and the sheer number of men that were involved in in that assault caused absolute chaos um and we've got Probably the most famous story is that of um, George Arthur Noland, who won the VC. He mm. ordered a posthumous VC yeah. during this particular bit of, of fighting. And it, it describes how he was moving from trench to trench, um, distributing ammunition because very difficult to get supplies to the guys. Um, actually, five commander who were based further back um, for the majority of this period, um, running supplies up and forth and, you know, the, the Indians as well, supporting amazing job getting supplies and evacuating wounded. But I, I suppose generally, speaking you know operations in the Arakan you, you've just got to do more with less haven't you it's exactly it yeah you've got to you've got to do more with less and 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 also you know it affects morale because you already know that your kind of your resources are limited you know that going in which is yes. a, must be a horrible feeling and by the point where George Arthur Nolan makes his kind of stand as it were and I mean he's like completely exposed himself throwing grenades he apparently was firing his tommy gun from a hip which is just like out like a film like you know every time yeah. I read that I'm like what <laughs> um <laughs> and he his actions really inspired a lot of the other men to kind of dig deeper um and to hang on and and they did but you know by mid-morning it was pretty pretty sketchy stuff because they were really running out of ammunition and the Japanese just kept on coming even though realistically they're not getting anywhere you know they are continually getting pushed back you've got a mound of Japanese dead almost at this point um the tanks are um helping to sort of also uh, push back so but they come under attack soon so you've got the suicide attacks from the Japanese on the tanks to try and knock those out yeah, and um, you know, there's an account of a Japanese uh, soldier running underneath, um, blowing up one of the tanks, um, killing the crew. By midday, you've only got one of those Shermans left um, in action, and it really was a, a textbook display of the kind of ideology, the fighting ideology of the Japanese here, and you know they're using what well, to piercings. just keep coming just to keep coming yeah these kind of um they're using this weapon piercing thunderbolt um which is like a basically like a bamboo stick with a mine attached to the end you know which which they just run at um and you see the, the attacker doesn't doesn't come out of that yeah um 
and you've got Japanese soldiers wearing green berets. You know, they've, yeah. they've got off the dead. Um, really like that psychological warfare is pushing the commandos to their limit in all areas, on top of the climate, on top of everything else in the area. Um, yeah. The heat's intensifying throughout the day. You know, it's worth mentioning that because... And yeah, a lot it's of these... blisteringly hot, isn't it? I mean, really hot and humid and sticky and, and just... Yeah, and a lot of the guys Terrible as well... conditions have been fighting diseases you know like my granddad had malaria <laughs> like you know and dengue fever and these kind of things so oh it's not goodness. even like you're going into this like fresh and in good condition you know you've been out there I mean, for a while I, 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 I just want i wanted to talk about that actually when you look at the pictures of these guys um uh you know and they've got their shirts off they don't look like the sort of hench uh modern soldier do they who's been in the gym they look do you, know, do you know what I mean? I do, they yeah. Look, they, they look like regular people. They look sinewy. Sinewy, well, they, yeah. They, but yeah, but they, they might look sinewy, but they don't, they, they aren't all, uh, they aren't all They're buff. not beefcakes, and, are they? That's no, sure. and I find that, I, I always think that's really, really interesting that, that, that they are, and I know they're all, I know they're all whip, whip, whip fit because, because that, that, you know, that's the, the great thing that the commanders are completely into. But the fact that they don't, that they, they don't look like, these, it, it makes it, to me, it makes it all the more sort of um, unbelievable. You know, that these guys look like, I know they're not ordinary men, but they do just look like regular people. Yeah, the, I think that's true. Are you, are you struck by that when you look at these photos? Because they aren't all, they don't yeah. look like... Um, it's it's interesting because I think, do you know when you see like the adverts for the Royal Marines on TV and they're in the jungle? Yeah, yeah. And they're, yeah. that, like you say, they're all like jungle warfare, but they're all looking just like ripped. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, and, and actually the reality of it was these guys, as I said, have been out in the field. A lot of them have been sick, you know, with these horrendous yeah. diseases. They're acclimatising still. A lot of them didn't have even, you know, didn't even have the proper kit for the jungle, never mind anything yeah. else. Um, and yeah, when you look at the, the photos, um, you know, post Hill 170, there's a couple of photos and the guys are, yeah, they're like pretty slim. They, they look like they've been fighting, you know, like. Yeah. They, and they've all got yeah. the, they've all got the shits, haven't they? It's the thing, I think, basically, yeah. it, absolutely. Touch of the dog. Absolutely. Everybody's got it. Yeah. Um, it, it oh gosh, it's, the, it, I mean, the thing But they're is, still wearing berets and looking rock. Oh, well, yeah, of course. So, they're, yeah, they look really cool. I mean, the, the thing that's, I think, that's really interesting about this is now when you, dis when you take us through this battle and what this is like and what it's like for the men, how on earth has this um, slipped from uh, our martial tradition, if you, if you want? Because it's, it's, got every, it's got everything in it you could possibly want. Um, you know, and, and not, not just, not, I mean, not just this sort of uh, fighting the human wave and how you deal with that and how you hold your nerve and how you hang on and, and the fact that the ammunition might run out. And, and, and so far from anywhere. I mean, and, this well, is and, the point. And, and you, exactly. And you might as well be on the moon doing it. And, and you're not fighting to stop the V-bombs falling on London <laughs> and, all the and all the stuff that you have available to you as motivation in Northwest yeah. Europe, you know. It's it's crazy, and and when you look at it as well, you know there were a lot of a lot of bravery awards were handed out during this, and the aftermath. You know, you're talking sort of numbers vary between three hundred and fifty and four hundred and fifty Japanese dead, and there's like a hundred or so of the commandos who have been killed, and yeah. like that is mad odds, you know, <laughs> and and what yes. they achieved numbers wise with everything else that we've kind of discussed and and. It's incredible. I don't know why it's kind of, it's always captured my imagination. And that's why I want to get the story out there more because 
it's incredible. And these guys, you know, my granddad did always feel like a bit forgotten because people didn't really talk about it that much. And well, it's certainly not. It's certainly capturing my imagination. I can tell you, um, it's, abso- it's, I mean, it's, it's it's just absolutely, it's absolutely amazing boggling. story. It's boggling, and and also, I mean, I think what's really interesting is is as we said right at the start, the this is the way the Japanese have been doing things in the jungle since 1941 and you can beat it you but 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 what it takes is really 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 holding your nerve isn't it and um because i because the, the morale thing of not being flush with kit and not and not being um you know n- not having uh, a bottomless pit of small arms ammunition must be a thing that really really certainly for the officers the officers must be thinking oh crap you know if we if we spend too much ammunition on this first action and they're coming tomorrow, we've got to be re- really careful. So your fire discipline has to be really good too. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's sort of boggling the whole thing. Exactly, I think discipline is is a is a big part of it, as you say. And I do know that you know after afterwards, you know, some of the veterans felt a bit a, a bit used in a sense in in the fact that right. they felt that they were pushed into to do the work of men of, of a much larger group essentially um yeah, yeah yeah which i can i can totally understand because they did you know when you look at the numbers just alone um it that that is something that i would understand would resonate afterwards and i mean yeah yeah certainly the person who didn't kind of um overlook this and who who, who did recognize it was mount batten you know he he cited the opticapture kangora's you know, an outstanding operation of, of inter-service cooperation. He recognised it and he really heaped a lot of praise on, on 3 Commando Brigade in particular for for everything we've said, for showing the courage, determination, initiative and spirit that they did. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting how, yeah, that hasn't really translated since then. It's almost attritional, isn't it? It's like, how long can you keep up defending this? A feeling, you know, in a sense, sensing that perhaps your enemy has unlimited numbers. That's almost a feeling. That must be how it feels. And also that your, your enemy your enemy is prepared, to, kind of prepared to do the thing that you wouldn't, which is to just spend men until, you know, it's the complete reversal of your mindset, isn't it? It is. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the, the, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, that your mindset is, well, we're going to all try and get out of this alive. And the Japanese are like, well, if I get out of this dead, I'll have done, I'll have done the right thing. I mean, I've done the, the right thing for the, the emperor. It's the strangest, it's the strangest, strangest thing. That's the Um, whole, go on now, sorry. No, 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 go on, go on, sorry. I was just going to say that that is the whole, like, you know, I've touched touched upon it before with things, but that kind of Bushido warrior code that's just ingrained, you know, that the guys, they're fighting an ideology as much as anything else, which we all know about Burma. We all know that that is is a key thing with the Japanese Imperial Army. And I think that the action at Kangor is very much testament to that. Um, And... Yeah, I can't I can't imagine what it must have felt like. And also, I guess, you know, for the for the commandos as well, though, they know they can't retreat. There is really nowhere for them to yes. go. So yes. so then you, what you, what is your option is just to hang on. It is just to hang on and to try and push forward because there's no going back. <laughs> there's yeah. no kind of escaping. Yeah. So, so when your grandfather, you know, I mean, when your grandfather did talk to you about it, I mean, what? what what were your sort of big takeaways? I mean, obviously, it really—I I get it that it completely sparked your interest, and, and how could it possibly not? But, 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 what did he? What did he ever touch on any of this? He, he, he didn't really. The most I ever heard him talk about it was when he did this. He did this documentary um, a while back. Um, I've got a copy of it somewhere. And the thing that's always stuck in my mind, a, was just that 
you know, he repeatedly said we were all just young guys and we were terrified. And anybody who says they weren't terrified is a liar. Um, mm. And he had a lot of respect for the Japanese soldiers. He had a lot of respect for them and said they were as brave as we were. That was the other thing. Um, but, you know, like like a lot of, of veterans of that theatre, he hated the Japanese, you know, afterwards. Yeah. He wouldn't buy anything Japanese, you know, because after after this, actually, um, Three Commander Brigade went on to peacekeeping. They didn't get to go home after this, you know, like no. when, when the war finished, um, they went on to Hong Kong um, to re- help rebuild and police Hong Kong. Um, and they saw... The, the results of, of Japanese occupation in those areas. And that really stuck with my granddad. I mean, aside from all the stuff that went on in, in warfare and all the kind of... Yes, the, we, battle's one, the battle's one thing, isn't it? But it's the the what, battle's it, it, one thing. Yeah, but yeah. The, the kind of underhand tactics in, you know, that the Japanese were using from, from a Western perspective is one thing. But actually seeing how they treated the locals, seeing how they treated the prisoners of war, all of that kind of come together. Um, I think my granddad was pretty cynical, at really. You know, he, he kind of was a bit like, well, this is, the, this is apparently the cost of freedom. You know, that was kind of his view on it. It was always this so-called freedom, you know, and it was always Mm. just the the death of a lot of his friends and and then not being really spoken about afterwards, I guess, kind of compounded that a bit. Yeah, I I mean, it it would do, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, because if if you're in in Normandy, you're fated and lauded and all the rest of it. But if you if you well, on Hill 117, you know, everyone goes, what the hell's that? And you can get the ferry mm. from Portsmouth. I mean, that's the other thing right. in Normandy, isn't it? It's just you, you get the ferry but, but, over but, to Weistrup. It's easy, isn't it? Whereas this is like this is the other the other the other side of the world, and in a country that probably isn't that interested in anyway as well. You know, it's not like it's not like being a, a Normandy veteran turning up in Normandy and French people falling all over you and honouring you and. One of the most amazing things about the, the trip when they went back was meeting the villagers. So they met, when they went to 170, the villagers, Kangor villagers, had like set up like a welcoming kind of party for them. Um, and I've got these amazing photos of them like in the hills around the area, um, all sort of like sat in a circle and they put their little crosses in, you know, to commemorate um, the dead and all the villagers are there and the villagers helped them get there. You know, you've got these little, the local guys with their little boats so that, because they sailed back up the Chungs, which was amazing. So you've got the photos <laughs> of like these old dudes in the, in the going up these waterways. So oh, would you it, share some of those, Lucy? I'd of course, yeah. And it is very much, I guess that was very cathartic. And I know that, you know, my granddad, um, he actually couldn't make it to the top of 170. He's, I've got a picture of him halfway up just because it was just too much to go all the way up. But, um, I know that that journeying back was an amazing thing and it always is for veterans returning anywhere but I think in particular to somewhere that's so far afield um, is cathartic and, and to catch up with, you know... I've got a picture of him, like, pouring over a map in, like, you know, in one of the hotels and stuff and it's just... That means a lot to to me as well to have... Know that he, he got that chance to go back and kind of, yeah, put some, put some demons to rest, I guess. Well... Uh, thank you so much for talking to us about this. I mean, I, you know, I, it's just fascinating, I, isn't it? Absolutely I, fascinating. I, I, I often say to James when we're when when we're talking about what we're going to do next is that the, my main my main takeaway from two years doing this podcast is I realise um, how little how little I knew in the first place, and then how even less I know as it goes on. And this is a campaign I knew I I did not know anything about, and I've read quite a lot about Burma. And this is again, it's a sort of sidebar, even in the books that that try and uh, sort of get put you straight on the Burma campaign. So 
thank you so much. And um, I think that idea of the of the donkeys braying and the Japanese shouts from the woods mm. below is something that's going to keep me awake at night tonight. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, stuff. thank you, Lucy. It's been it's been fascinating. Really, really interesting. Thank, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheerio. Thanks, guys. Cheerio. Bye.